Scarlet stood before the court An attorney in a suit Swore an oath to tell the truth Scarlet Welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and I've got a real treat for you this week with Judge Robin Rosenbaum from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Last week, we had Judge Chuck Breyer from the trial court out in San Francisco. And this week, we move closer to home in Miami, and we also speak to an appellate judge. So it's going to be a lot different, really interesting. Judge Rosenbaum is a gem. She's such a nice person, a good person. And I think you'll really like her. We talk about legal writing, civility on the court, how the appellate courts work. And this was an interview I did with Judge Rosenbaum for the Florida Bar um, for a presentation of what's called Continuing Legal Education. And so we get some a bit of inside baseball here with this conversation, but I still think it's really interesting and I think you'll like it. Judge Rosenbaum, as you'll see, is just great. And so let's turn to it in For the Defense. Next. Judge Rosenbaum went to UM Law School. She clerked for Stanley Marcus um, at the same time I was clerking and we got to know each other. Um, She went to Holland and Knight, became a prosecutor after that, and then uh, was a magistrate judge, a district court judge, and now on the Court of Appeal. She's always been in this federal family, um, which is, is so great. And like I said, she's just a wonderful person. So welcome, Judge Rosenbaum. Thank you, David. And thank you for the very generous and kind introduction. I appreciate it. So I want to get right into it. Let's talk about something that people know you for, which is your legal writing. I mean, because your legal writing is obviously wonderful, but it's also very unique because you like starting opinions out with stories or quoting interesting people or, um, you know, one of your opinions starts out with a quote from Tyrion Lannister. The quote was, a wise man once said a true history of the world is a history of great conversations in elegant rooms. I love that quote. That was Rodriguez versus City of Doral from 2017. Of course, your colleague quoted Shakespeare in his concurrence. I I prefer the Game of Thrones. Judge Jordan uh, quoted Shakespeare. So so there's all kinds of those references in your opinions to The Martian, Bruce Wayne, Charades, Encyclopedia Brown, others. I have seen recently some critique about, you know, the pop culture references, the stories, the quotes. Tell us why you do it and why you think it's effective to do it. Sure. Look, obviously with anything you can you can go too far, but I do it because I think it's really important for judicial opinions to be accessible. I think that if you I think that when you have citizens who are interested in a case or in an issue, or maybe just in the law in general. If they are able to pick up and read an opinion and understand the legal basis for why we decided the opinion the way that we did, that makes us more secure as a republic. Um, And in fact, I think uh, if you look at Chief Justice Roberts' end of the year report for 2019, he spoke of the importance of civic education. Um, It's a really big deal. And... um, I'm hopeful that by writing it in a way that I hope will be easy to understand and possibly a little bit more interesting, 
that anybody who's interested in the issue or the case will be able to read it, read it all the way through and understand it. And I hope that sometimes the stories make the issue uh, make more sense. They're sort of, sometimes they're kind of analogies. And, and do you um, come up with those stories from, you know, shows you watch or, or are these clerk stories? Like who, who, who comes up with the quotes and the stories? Um, you know, it's, it's a collective effort. I have wonderful clerks. It's really a lot of fun um, to sit around and, and talk about the cases with them. Um, you know, sometimes a case just kind of cries out to you as to what kind of case it is. What is this case about? What is the essence of the case? And sometimes it's not quite as obvious or sometimes, you know, like uh, there was this case called United States versus Pfeiffer. And I think I must have spent two days on Khan's Academy learning about physics, um, <laughs> not physics, uh, chemistry, and organic chemistry. And so to me, that was always the science case. And just always from the time that I started on the case, I thought about the Martian and I thought about, uh, you know, the lead character in the Martian, what he says when he realizes that he has this problem, he's going to have to science the heck out of it. And it just seemed like that was what the case was about. I mean, the case was about more things than that. But the science, in order to understand why we were saying what we were saying, that this was an ambiguous term, positional isomer, it was necessary to go into the science. And so it was sort of like a heads up kind of warning to the readers. There's going to be a lot of science here, but we're going to take the time to go through it and try to explain it so that it will make sense when you go to read about the law and you'll understand why we're deciding the way we are. It wouldn't matter how many cons academy I could did. I, I would never be able to do organic chemistry. I, I, I have a tough time when I'm watching my kids try to do those, uh, you know, notes on basic stuff. So, so you know, the Tyrion Lannister. I got to ask you, your favorite character on Game of Thrones is it Tyrion, or who is it? I, I'm a big Tyrion Lannister fan, but I also like uh, I like Sansa and Arya Stark. They're also two of my favorites. The women characters on that show are are awesome. Um, they are so. You know, you were, you're, you're a unicorn because there aren't many court of appeals judges who are also district judges and magistrate judges. So you, you've seen all sort of three layers of the judiciary. I hope we, we take the next step, um, to the Supreme Court. But so I guess my question is, what is the biggest difference with your job now on the court of appeals and your previous two jobs? Um, you know, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I'm really fortunate to have had the opportunity to do all three jobs. I feel like um, I learned a lot of different things in each of the mm -hmm. positions that are important. And um, for me, the biggest difference is I spend a lot more time now doing research and writing. I mean, that is primarily what I am doing. On the district court, of course, we did a lot of research and writing as a, as a district judge and as a magistrate judge, but there was also the in-court work. And when I was a district judge, um, you know, I think I was in trial almost every day of the time that I was a district judge, believe it or not. Hmm. So, um, so one of the nice things for me, because my favorite part of the job is doing the legal research and writing, is having a little bit more time to focus on that. 
and you know, um, different people who do the different jobs might tell you that they prefer the district court, that they like the in-court work. I will say I miss seeing the attorneys and um, having the contact face-to-face -face with people and court staff. I mean, that that is definitely a big void. Um, but as far as the legal work itself is concerned, I really enjoy the writing and the research part of it. Yeah, I will say I, I've heard people say, you know, you almost have more power as a district judge because you know, you, it's your case. Uh, you're going to make the rulings in court. Um, you sort of have control, full control over the case. Um, whereas, and, and most times, right, you're going to get affirmed, uh, especially on like the evidentiary issues and other sort of on the, you know, situation calls. But on the appellate court, you know, you have to convince two other colleagues. Um, you you're sort of bound by all this law that's been around for a long time. And, um, you know, there's all these really tough standards of review. So, so, you know, one thing I've always wondered is like, should we shift away from such a deferential standard where we give the trial court every benefit of the doubt, every jury, the benefit of the doubt, not every uh, legal system is like that. Some, some legal systems, you know, the appellate court reviews everything fresh. Um, and it just seems, I don't know, when we go up on appeal, at least when I do, like it's such a high mountain to climb sometimes, even though we know we're right. I understand what you're saying. Here's the thing, right? I mean, at some point, somebody is going to have to engage in judgment of some type. That is, when we're talking about seeing witnesses, things like that, somebody's going to have to engage in some judgment there. And then the question becomes, well, who is in the better position to engage in that judgment because you don't want, for example, um, if a crime is committed, you don't want every single person who is convicted of that crime to always have the exact same sentence. We want, we want people to be able to consider individual circumstances, the circumstances of the crime, you know, a whole host of things. And we want them to use that judgment when they're fashioning a sentence. So then the question becomes, well, who's in the better position to, to exercise that judgment, because we can't really both do it. Um, and, and I think that because the district judge sees the individual and may have had a trial and gone through the entire process and heard from, and heard maybe some mitigating circumstances, heard maybe from people who are victims or maybe not victims, um, that there's a reason why we've, why, why the system chooses to give the district judge that discretion and for the appellate court who never gets to see the individual to defer to that. But yeah. you're right. I mean, there are, there are going to be downsides either way. Right. No, the sentencing example makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because, because, you know, trying to figure out the right sentence seems like a particularly district court thing to do. But I'll tell you what, what the frustration comes from, from a lot of practitioners, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is the harmless error part, right? So, so you go up on appeal, you show all of these errors, um, and invariably the government will respond, well, even if it's error, it's harmless, and you, you would have to show you know, X, Y, and Z to get over that harmless error standard. And a lot of times the Court of Appeals will say, yeah, you know, the district court messed up, but the evidence was overwhelming. You're like, wait, 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 hold on a second. How do you know the evidence was overwhelming? Like I was in that trial, it wasn't, didn't seem so overwhelming to me. 
um, and and um, maybe those errors would have made a difference. So it seems a harmless error is a particular one that I know frustrates so many criminal defense lawyers. I, I can appreciate that. I can understand why it's frustrating because the best that we can ever do is try to put ourselves in the position of having been in the courtroom. Obviously, we're going to look through the entire record. We're going to read read the transcripts and um, we'll read the briefs as well, but it's not going to be the same as actually having been there. Right. And so there, so there's a little bit of second guessing going on. And that, that of course is frustrating to somebody who was there in the first person when, when the error occurred. Um, of course, you know, uh, the Supreme Court has told us in Chapman that we need to apply the harmless error standard. So we try to do the best that we can but I can definitely understand how it would be frustrating to a practitioner who was there and really didn't think it was harmless at all to hear from a panel, well, we think it was harmless. I always wondered, I'm not going to ask you this, but if a district court read one of your opinions that said harmless error and then said, well, it was harmless, so I'm going to do it again, what would happen on appeal in that case? But we'll be right back with Judge Robin Rosenbaum in For the Defense next. I need to pause for a second and talk about the harmless error rule because it is so frustrating to criminal defense lawyers, uh, especially criminal defense appellate lawyers, when a case goes up on appeal and you can show that either the trial court let in evidence that it shouldn't have let in or the prosecutor engaged in misconduct in some of its arguments or that the police engaged in misconduct by coercing a confession and then the judge let it in. And so the cases, remember, the cases that go to trial are close cases because very few cases go to trial anymore. And so all these mistakes will happen at a trial, all these errors, and confessions will be allowed in. Uh, evidence that shouldn't have come in will be allowed into evidence that the jury will see. And you'll get up on appeal and you'll convince the appellate court, look, all of this should not have happened. This confession shouldn't have come in. It was coerced. This evidence shouldn't have come in. And what the court will say is, well, you're right, counsel. None of that should have come in, but the evidence was overwhelming without it. And so we're not going to order a new trial. And it's it's maddening as a defense lawyer, because how can the appellate court uh, or the Supreme Court decide that it was harmless error? They don't know the real trial dynamics at the trial, what the jury was thinking. Um, whether it was a close case or an overwhelming case, as they say, but they always say it's an overwhelming case so that they can have a basis to affirm or to say the conviction stands. Um, it ignores in a lot of ways the realities of a real criminal defense trial. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, that trials are so low because judges are trained to let things in now. Trial judges are trained to let things in because they know that on appeal, what the Court of Appeals is going to say is, yes, even if that was a mistake, it was harmless. It didn't make a difference in the trial, which uh, makes me nuts, as you can tell. Um, and I'm going to talk to Judge Rosenbaum in the next segment about why trials are so low and what we can do about them. But this is one of the problems, harmless error, and we really need to change that doctrine. So trials are, are way down. Um, really low. I mean, less than 3%. Forget about the Zoom year where we had no trials, but but even before that, around 3%. Um, a lot of folks have said it's a problem for our system. Our system sort of built on trials and, and it, they shouldn't be this low. 
Um, what do we do? How do we get trials back? You know, that's that's a great question. Um, I'm not really sure what the answer to that is. I think there are some, I think there are certain developments in the law that might make people more interested in trying their cases. For example, Rehave. Um, I mean, Apprendi was a while ago already, but still Apprendi, Rehave is kind of, um, I mean, I guess it's it's a little different because we're talking about the knowledge requirement and we're just construing a statute. But basically, you know, the issue of of having to have the option of a jury deciding every element, not only of the case, but also if there's going to be a minimum mandatory uh, that's involved or anything of that nature. So, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that might cause people to be more interested in going to trial. I think it's important also that to the extent that there's any basis for the perception of a trial penalty, that's a problem. You know, um, people should, it's their right to go to trial if they wish to put the government to the burden of proving its case, they should be able to do that. Uh, and, you know, if they otherwise accept responsibility at the time that, you know, if they wind up being convicted and they otherwise accept responsibility, they should be able to receive the acceptance of responsibility points. Um, so, you know, those are the things that come to my mind initially, I guess. Yeah, I always have these debates with my district court friends about, um, you know, whether it's a trial penalty or an acceptance credit. I, you know, my, my district court judge friends love to uh, when they sentence someone uh, and I and I push them about it, they we we fight about it. But um, you know, I, I mentioned Zoom over the past year, and and you know we're doing this over Zoom. I, I was actually looking so forward to this when we planned this a year ago. To you know, when you talk to an appellate court judge and have one of these conversations, you get to do it in one of those big brown relaxing chairs in front of a big audience, and you know, have the nice glass with water and the whole thing set up and. I, I was so looking forward to it. I tried to set it up with my couch in the back to, to at least have a little bit of a feel. But, you know, everything's been on. very home. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, we've been doing everything on Zoom for the past year. Some of the things have been great. Um, you know, I have to say, doing the appellate arguments on Zoom has been a lot less stressful for me. Um, I can spread out on my desk. Um, I don't have to have some of your colleagues uh, yelling at me. For some reason, they don't yell as much on Zoom. Um, so I'm not sure I'm I'm so against appellate arguments on Zoom. How, how do you feel about it? How have Zoom arguments been going? I mean, I think there are certainly benefits. The ones that you've pointed out are, are I'm sure that the lawyers feel great about that. Um, it's also very convenient. Uh, we can, if we need to do an oral argument on the spur of the moment, we can do it. So there are lots of benefits. Um, the downsides are there, you know, it's inevitable that if we have a Zoom argument, at least at some point during the week, if not more than once, we'll lose a lawyer, we'll lose a judge, you know, we'll have to get everybody back on. Right. Somebody's speakers won't be working or microphone, you know. I mean, I think we do pretty well and we have wonderful IT people, but they can't control everything. And let me apologize for the constant thunder noise you might be hearing in the background. I've just seen the Blue Angels who seem to be practicing. I think we have an air show coming up in Fort Lauderdale. 
So that's what that noise is. And um, sorry about that. That's okay. But in any case, you can't even, um, appellate judges can't control everything. Right. <laughs> right. But, but look, when we sit in person, you know, when, when there, for the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, as you know, we're in three different states. And so I, for the last 14 months, have not seen in person any of my colleagues in Georgia or in Alabama, and for that matter, um, in Florida as well. So the nice thing about having in-person uh, arguments, there are actually a few nice things, but one of the nice things is you start, you know, you develop a relationship with the other judges that you sit with. And I think that's really important. It's also nice to be able to have um, protracted conversations about the cases and discuss exactly what we think is important in the case, how we think we want to decide it. We do all of those things on a conference call or on Zoom afterwards as well, but there's a little bit of the uh, intimacy, obviously, that's removed from it. And as far as the arguments themselves go, I, I mean, I think there's something to be said for, for being in person. Um, sometimes when you're on Zoom, you know, people step on each other. They don't mean to, but it's sometimes difficult to hear if you're speaking when somebody else is speaking and you've got, you know, multiple screens to look at as far as who else is on on the screen. So you don't necessarily know if you're being asked a question. And so when you're in the courtroom, that all of those problems tend to disappear. Um, it's also easier for the public to come in and view the argument. I mean, we have been live streaming the arguments, which I think is good. Wonderful. But we have not been doing it by Zoom. We've just been doing the audio. And so if somebody wanted to come and see the arguments, there would be no way for them to do that when we do it by Zoom. You know, it's interesting. In the Supreme Court, they're doing these telephonic arguments. They're not doing them by Zoom. And so each justice gets a turn to do the questioning. And in the past, Justice Thomas was known for never asking a question, but now he asks questions regularly. So, you know, for some people, they feel more comfortable, I, I imagine, doing it this way um, than, than the way before. I, you know, other than the internet going out or those type of IT issues, ha have there been any sort of disasters with Zoom during oral argument for you? No, not really. But, you know, it's interesting that you note the descending order of tenure, I guess, um, on the Supreme Court arguments. When we when we did our unboxed by Zoom, we did it that way as well. And it really affects, I mean, as a judge asking questions, it really tends to affect the questions you're going to ask because you're going to be asking questions in a certain order. And so the questions that you might have been interested in might have been asked by a judge before you. And it might be that a judge, you know, three people before you ask the question, you want to ask a follow-up on that. But in between, there have been two other judges asking questions. And it just doesn't have the same kind of um, flow, I guess, if you will, that yeah. you have when we're all in the same room together. I, I think we're doing as well as we can, and I'm glad that we've been able to figure out a way to do it. So I'm not criticizing it. It's just that's one of the things that you miss from the in-person interaction. No, that makes sense. And and for en banc, it's, it, it, I've listened to some of the arguments. It is sort of, um, there's no flow to it like there would be in a regular argument. Um, by the way, speaking of oral arguments, I mean, some people say they don't even matter. I mean, a, a lot of people say it's, you know, it's a vestige of the old, uh, you know, old law that you come into court, you have 15 minutes. Um, 
you know, the judges have already made up their mind on the briefs. Do, do arguments matter? Have you, have your mind been changed during an oral argument? I think oral arguments do matter. I mean, look, we all spend a lot of time preparing for oral argument. We review the record. We, we go through the law. We discuss the cases with our law clerks. So of course, we're going to have a viewpoint that we come into the oral argument with usually. I mean, sometimes there are cases that are so close, you just don't know. Mm. But some, but most of the time, I would say, you know, I, I feel like, all right, I think, I, I think this side is probably right. But, you know, sometimes things happen during the oral argument. Either an argument is really excellent and brings up points that um, might not have been as well fleshed out in the brief for whatever reason, or maybe they were and I just missed it. Um, or... Maybe one of my colleagues on the bench, because here's the other interesting thing, right? On the 11th Circuit, we generally do not talk about the cases on the oral argument calendar before we go into oral argument. And we do not share our bench briefs to the extent we have bench briefs, um, usually before oral argument. And, you know, some other courts do that, and there are benefits to each approach. But one of the benefits to our approach, I think, is that you know, you come at these cases sometimes from three different perspectives. And sometimes somebody sees something that somebody else didn't see. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even if that doesn't happen where they don't necessarily see something that the other person didn't see, just a different vantage point, a different perspective will trigger in another judge another thought. Of, oh, you know what? There's kind of a problem here. There's an issue. I want to follow up on this. And sometimes it really does affect the way the case, not only the way the case comes out, but the way that we analyze the case. Sure. So I would say that absolutely oral argument can be very important. And, and you know, if it's that important, it's interesting to me, the 11th Circuit, I think hears fewer cases than a lot of your sister circuits. Um, some circuits, if you ask for oral argument, you get it. Um, in, in ours, um, I don't know what the numbers are these days. It used to be between 20 and 25%. You, you know, the numbers better than I do would get oral argument in the 11th. Um, you know, the government in every case when they're the appellee says no argument necessary. I mean, you know, um, the defense is always asking for argument. Um, should the 11th circuit hear more cases and you know, how, what's the process just so our listeners know, how do you get oral argument? Like how, how is it decided? Sure. So just about every case that comes into the 11th Circuit is randomly assigned to a three-judge screening panel. And there will be an initiating judge whose job it is to go through the whole record and um, to decide whether she or he thinks that the case warrants oral argument. And if so, the judge just sends it to the clerk's office and it's set on the oral argument calendar. If we do that, usually I'll send a memo along explaining why we sent it to oral argument. Um, because the thing is that whoever sends it to oral argument may not be on the oral argument panel that hears the case. That's really weird, um, by the way. That's weird to me. <laughs> so let me explain why that is, though. The reason is that we get our oral argument sittings about a year in advance. And so, and that's so we can just schedule around conflicts and make sure we don't have conflicts with, with our sittings. If we know where we're sitting a year in advance, we're not going to schedule other things in the middle of the week, et cetera. So, so what happens is when something gets sent to oral argument, the clerk's office puts it onto the next available oral argument calendar. 
And so whoever's sitting on it, whoever's sitting on that panel is sitting on that panel. But in any case, returning to the screening process, what we do is let's say that the first judge, the initiating judge, reviews everything and says, you know what, I, I don't think this really requires oral argument. Maybe it's because it's, you know, it's a pretty straightforward case or we have controlling precedent and there's only one way the case can really come out, whatever the case may be. Um, so I'm gonna write up a proposed opinion. So the, then the first judge might write a proposed opinion and the second and the third judges will review the proposed opinion and the record and decide whether they think that the case warrants oral argument. If, if the second or third judges on the screening panel wants to send the case to oral argument, it's their prerogative to do so and they can do that. Um, otherwise, the second and third judges can review the proposed opinion and either, you know, work with the, the first judge on the opinion to get it to something that everybody can agree to, um, or else if, if it's, you know, if they agree with it as is, they can just agree with it as is. And that's, those are the kinds of uh, cases that get decided on the papers and without oral argument. Mm -hmm. um, the reason that we don't do oral argument in every case, there are a few reasons, but one, one is, as I've, as I've explained, from a legal standpoint, not every case needs oral argument because there are lots of cases that we get that are controlled by binding precedent. And there's not, I mean, you know, there's not really any other way the case can come out. Sure. Um, cases that involve issues of first impression, um, cases that have really complex facts that drive the legal issues. Those are the kinds of cases that at least I look to send oral argument. Um, we, you know, we only have 12 active judges on our court. That's the full court. Um, we're really fortunate to have, I think, eight um, senior judges who provide us with a tremendous amount of help. But I think, for example, last year we may have had 5,300 filings. So if you do the math, there's just no way that that number of judges, especially sitting three on a panel, can hear oral argument in, in every single case. It just, there's just, it's not possible. Right. So that's why we pick and choose. I can understand why it could be frustrating if you think your case warrants it and it doesn't get it. Um, but that that's actually how the process works. No, that's interesting. And, and the number of judges versus the number of cases is interesting because I think you all have a higher caseload than a lot of your brothers and sisters around the country. And there's always been this debate about whether the 11th Circuit should be expanded um, with the number of judges. And I know that's a that's a hot topic right now in a lot of other courts. So I'm not going to put you on the spot. I just flag that for the listeners that that is uh, an issue that has come up over the years in the 11th Circuit about how big should the court be? Is 12 judges uh, too small or not, and uh, considering the number of cases, should we add more judges? The argument against it in the old days used to be, well, we sort of like everybody on the court and we don't want to add people that we don't like, uh, which always was a weird argument to me. So I, I think it's a little different than that. I, I think that, that, you know, there are two two arguments on this. The The one argument I think stems from the history of the 11th Circuit, right? The 11th Circuit um, broke off of the 5th Circuit and at the time, I think the Fifth Circuit had 20 some odd judges on it. And, um, you know, the judges who came to the 11th Circuit had that experience of sitting in on banks and administrative meetings 
and conferences after the en bancs, um, where 20 some odd judges are trying to ask questions and give their opinions. And, and you know, um, it did not seem very functional, I think, in some respects or efficient um, to the judges who came over from, from the Fifth Circuit. But look, and, and, and I understand and appreciate that. And I sort of felt that way at one time as well. But, um, you know, consistently over, I mean, I'm not even sure how long now, but the 11th Circuit has consistently for many years had the highest number of merits resolutions per active judge um, of every circuit in the country. And so, like, I looked at the statistics for last year and the 11th Circuit had roughly 282 merits resolutions per active judge. Um, the average in the country was 196. Oh, wow. That's so a difference. We were 44% higher than the average. And, you know, look, um, that's, that's, that's a lot. Oh, yeah, really. absolutely. Um, and I understand, you know, we, we don't want to become so big that we, we don't have a cohesive group. Right. Um, and, and there's not any kind of, coherency to our, our overall circuit precedent. Um, but, you know, the problem is in the past, the way we've solved that problem is we've had a lot of visiting judges. And I, I can't tell you how much we all appreciate their help. And it's it's actually a lot of fun to meet the other judges sure. from the district courts and from other circuits. And I really enjoy it. But the downside of that, again, is you've got people coming in and coming out. And so there's not this same kind of um, consistency, maybe, in in the decisions. And we have them on the oral argument cases, which are the cases where we're more often publishing. Right. So, um, you know, I think if you were to add to the 11th Circuit, you'd probably have to add three spots because we have three states. And I'm going to guess that each state each state's legislative delegation would like to have one judge. So that would take us to 15. I think that's still a manageable number. I think that it would go far towards addressing, you know, some of these issues. And if we used the statistics from 2019 or fiscal year 2020, I guess it is, we would still have 225 merits resolutions per active judge which would still be about 15% above the fiscal year 2020 average. So, right. um, you know. Well, I'm, I'm in favor of adding three judges, but I, I don't think it should be one from each state. I mean, the number of cases that come from Florida greatly outnumber both Alabama and Georgia combined. So to me, uh, we should get all three, but I, I know I'm going to lose that fight, Judge. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on that. I will say that about 50% of our appeals do come out of Florida. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back with For the Defense. So I was mentioning getting more Floridians on the 11th Circuit, which just seems fair to me. But one thing you may not know is there's never been a Floridian on the United States Supreme Court, which is just crazy. Florida's totally underrepresented, never had a Supreme Court justice. I think it's it's time we get one. And Judge Rosenbaum has been uh, one of the judges talked about as having a chance to move up. So let's keep our fingers crossed 
I'll also say a lot of people ask me uh, when listening to the podcast, a lot of law students, young lawyers, how do they get experience either trying cases or arguing appeals? And my number one bit of advice is to go to a federal or state public defender's office. I remember my first week at the federal defender's office in Miami, I started on a Monday and the following Monday, I had an argument in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. That Tuesday, um, the lawyer who was supposed to argue it got really, really sick and they decided to give me the file. And I argued it the next week. Paul Rashkin and Richard Clue, two great, awesome appellate lawyers in the Federal Defender's Office helped me get ready. And the question in that case was whether the storeroom of a dwelling was actually attached to the house. Because if it was attached to the house, then it was a violent crime, the robbery of the storeroom of a dwelling. And if it wasn't, it didn't count as a crime of violence. And so we got it into all kinds of uh, grammatical debates about what of meant and of the dwelling. And I made an argument that, you know, you could say the mailbox of a dwelling, clearly that wasn't attached. And I remember an appellate judge got really angry with me when I threw that analogy in her face. But uh, that was the fun times of being a young public defender. And I think it's a great job that anybody who wants experience either arguing appeals or trying cases should jump at. So, so many cases do get decided on the briefs. Um, so briefs better be good. And, and I've read some briefs that are terrible, not from in criminal cases. Actually, I think in criminal cases, the briefs from the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Federal Defender's Office are probably some of the best briefs that you see. Um, but what, what advice do you have for lawyers for their brief writing? Because to me, this is sort of um, a black box. We don't know what you guys are looking for. And so I think this is a good opportunity for um, some feedback from the court as to how do we make our briefs better? I mean, everybody's going to have their own set right. of preference, but I think there are some obvious things, right? I mean, things that everybody should know. Um, cite the record when you're giving us facts, tell us where to find things in the record. You'd be surprised um, especially in fact-bound cases, summary judgment issues, for example. Um, it's really important to tell us where to find what supports your statement of the facts. Uh, you know, we're going to go through everything, but we might not see it or it might not have the same relevance to us. Right. Or in any case, you know, we're going to be looking at what was what was cited in your brief. So you want to cite the record, the exact location, and make sure it says what you say it says. Um, our, I would say argue and distinguish the controlling cases. Honestly, uh, if you have a difficult case to deal with, make sure you deal with it because we are going to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, you might not like how we decide to deal with it. Um, you know, write clearly. My personal preference is direct and straightforward writing that's easy to understand. As I said previously, um, you know, you never know. I don't mean to suggest that we're going to make it onto Oprah Winfrey's book club list, but you never know who's going to pick up the brief. I mean, this a lot of things now go online and you just never know who's going to see it. So not only is it helpful, obviously you want to convince the judges, but it's also a public service to make your brief understandable for anybody who's interested in the issue to be able to read it and understand what's going on and what the arguments are on your side. So I actually, um, I actually, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I actually like doing um, what you do in your, in your um, 
opinions, which is to give some analogies to pop culture quotes, stories. I've heard some judges love it, some judges hate it. Um, you do you like? I know you like doing it. Do you like reading reading it from the? I advocates? love reading. It. I, I mean, as long as it as long as it's relevant or um, you know. I think I think that it's great. It sometimes can be extremely helpful. It can crystallize the way that you think about a case sometimes. So to the extent that you can come up with a good analogy or helpful analogy or, um, you know, it, have fun when you're writing the, the brief in a way that's appropriate, of course, um, by all means, I, I really enjoy that. I don't know how my colleagues feel about that. Um, I, I'm sure some of them enjoy it as much as I do. Uh, others may or may not, but I haven't I haven't surveyed them. So I, I can't say four out of five judges say X or Y. Right. But I think the clerks actually like it and they probably uh, do the first read anyway. So, so a lot of times we have to play to the clerks as well. Um, so, you know, I said we talk a lot about legal writing. Um, are there any legal writers that you look up to? I know, you know, we lost Justice Scalia and, and Justice Ginsburg, obviously, two, two giants on the court and two great writers. Are there any writers that you look up to on the, uh, on the court? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of really top-notch writing, obviously, that comes out of the Supreme Court. Um, I'd say two of my favorites are Justice Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts. I just like they're very direct, easy to understand uh, way of writing. So those are those are probably two of, two of my favorites. But there are a lot of really great writers. So I, I never thought <laughs> Amicus brief writing would be in the news, but it has been recently, and. Um, you know, this issue comes up much more in the Supreme Court than it does in, in, in your court, but it is coming up more and more where issues are getting tons of amicus on both sides. And I guess my first question is, are those briefs helpful to you? Some judges find them unhelpful. Some judges find them helpful. And I guess second, are, are we just seeing too many of these briefs now getting filed? So... I'm going to just answer that the way any good lawyer would. It depends. <laughs> right. Of um, course. Right. But sometimes, sometimes the briefs are extremely helpful. Um, you know, I, just off the top of my head, a kind of example would be if you've got a case that's dealing with, in some way, a medical issue or something. Um, it might be helpful to have a brief that addresses not only, obviously, the law, because we want it to address the law, but sort of applies the law to the real medical considerations, for example, that can be really helpful. That can help me to understand, um, you know, what the best way to look at a case is, what the facts really mean in a difficult case like that. Um, sometimes they're not helpful. I, I mean, yeah, you know, of course. Um, but look, people file them. If they're not helpful, I don't spend a lot of time on them. If they are, then I do. And I'm happy and grateful to have them when we have that situation. You know, going obviously, back. We, we want to be careful also, though, because we don't want to conflict a judge off of um, a panel just by an amicus filing. Um, so especially one that's not a helpful amicus filing. So, you know, we've got that. 
Going back to something you said earlier about the visiting judges, I, I think this is changing. At least I've heard that it is changing. But I think one of the also frustrating things for for advocates in your court was we would sometimes find out the oral argument panel and we'd see one active judge, one senior judge and one visiting judge. And, and you know, I mean, no offense to the senior or the visiting judge, but a lot of times they're just going to follow suit with the the. I don't think you know our senior judges. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. I mean, some, some you're right. Some you're right. Um, Fair enough. And one of your, your, your boss is a, is a, is a senior judge now, your former boss, I should say. And, and so, yeah, no, with, with a judge like that, of course, but a lot of times we'd be like, oh, you know, I have to convince one, one person. But I, I, so I think that was, there was that frustration where, um, if you got oral argument, you were only getting one active judge from the court. No, I, I understand that. But really, I don't think that's really a problem. The panels that I've sat on with senior judges and visiting judges have not, I've not had that experience where they just kind of acquiesce. Um, you know, they, they fully contribute. Uh, there are many cases where um, we have more than one opinion let's put it that way. Um, but, you know, I, I should say this. Um, I think that when Chief Judge Pryor became the chief about a year ago, I think he significantly cut back on the visiting judges. And so our oral argument panels now do not have as many visiting judges. And so we actually have more oral arguments per panel as a result um, so that we can pick up the tremendous amount of help that we had previously been getting from the visiting judges. So I asked you before about the process for getting oral argument, and that was really helpful. I want to ask you about the process for getting en banc review. There's so few cases that get en banc review. We had a big one last night uh, come out, Blockbuster, that I wrote about uh, on the blog today, if you guys want to read about it. But um, so few cases get en banc review can you tell us how uh, how that works, how the review process works, and if you have any tips for getting on bank review? Sure. Um, well, actually, I know it feels like not a lot of cases get on bank, and you're right. If you compare the number of on bank cases we hear to the total number of cases that we decide in a given year, but in comparison to some other circuits, we have a lot more on banks. For example, the Second Circuit. I, I, the only reason I know this is I. I checked the statistics a few years ago when I was writing a dissent from the denial of rehearing on bonk. Um, the Second Circuit, you know, hears very, very few on bonk, very, very few cases on bonk in comparison to us. Um, I think, you know, the way the on bonk process works is uh, a case can, any judge of the court, any, any active judge of the court or any judge who was on the panel who heard the, the case the first time can request on an on banc poll. Um, and you might do that. We get petitions for rehearing on banc and petitions for rehearing by the panel all the time. And sometimes you might do it based on one of those. Or sometimes, you know, you might just have some kind of an issue with something. Maybe you agree with a dissent. Maybe you think that there's um, that our case law has sort of veered off and, and gotten off track from what the current case law should be, um, whatever the case may be, you can ask for 
uh, an en banc rehearing or an en banc poll, I guess I should say. To do that, you write a memo to the rest of the judges explaining why you are seeking en banc rehearing. And then whoever wrote the opinion the first time has the option of writing a memo back defending why she or he believes that the opinion that was issued is correct and we should not hear the case on bonk. Sometimes though, the person might say, you know what, I totally agree. This case needs to be reheard on bonk. I did this because, you know, um, binding precedent required it, but I think our binding precedent is wrong. And then there's the reply, the reply memo, I guess, from the judge who uh, requested the en banc in the first place. And then there's an en banc poll that's conducted and every active judge and um, any senior judge who was on the panel that heard the case the first time can vote in that. Actually, I might be wrong about this scene, whether the senior judges can vote in that. I'll, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think maybe the rule says they can't. Um, I have to go back and check that. But in any case, every active judge, can. it, it is every active judge. It's not the um, seniors. Right. No, that's right. Um, every active judge can vote in that. If we rehear it on bond, um, then, then there will be two case managers appointed, usually someone who requested the en banc poll and somebody who did not think we should have a rehearing en banc, and they will decide on or they will generate the proposed issues for the lawyers to brief to be reheard en banc. And the rest of the court will have an opportunity to weigh in on those issues. Um, and once everybody is on board, we will go ahead and, and send out those issues for briefing. And that's really how the en banc process works. As far as getting something heard for, for our en banc, I mean, you know, different, really, it's gonna be different um, arguments are going to appeal, no pun intended, to different judges. And so, um, you know, it might, be, it might be a situation of, well, we're the outlier, we're the only circuit who's considered this, who has this point of view, every other circuit is this other way. We, you know, maybe we really should reconsider that. Maybe that might be something that someone finds to be a really good reason for rehearing the case on bond. Even if ultimately we don't change our minds, it might be worth considering what other circuits have done and explaining why we don't agree with them if we're not going to do it that way. Or maybe we'll decide, you know what, it's time for a change and we need to we need to get in step with everybody else because there's a lot of there are a lot of good reasons for why these other circuits have opinions that are completely different from ours. Um, so, you know, that might be a way to do it. We're moving on to the last segment of our interview with Judge Robin Rosenbaum and for the defense next. So what is the en banc court? What is an amicus brief? We've been talking about a lot of those things. An amicus brief is just a friend of the court brief, a brief that is not done by the parties, but done by a, a different group who wants to let the court know what its view is. The en banc court is um, when the whole court decides an issue, not just three judges, but the whole entire court, all 12 judges. And I did this interview back in May when uh, a day after the en banc court had just decided a case called the United States versus Corinne Brown. It was a fascinating issue. The question in that case was uh, a juror said the Holy Spirit had told him that the defendant was innocent. And so in that case, the trial judge kicked that juror off from considering uh, 
the guilt or innocence of the defendant. And the reasoning from the trial court was that juror is not using the evidence, is not considering the evidence and the arguments of counsel, is using some uh, outside influence. Typically, the conservative judges would rule for the government, right? Conviction affirmed. But in this case, Judge Pryor, who we'll speak to next week, wrote the majority opinion for the en banc court, for the uh, opinion for the entire court, saying you can't get rid of a juror who's voting to acquit, voting for not guilty, based on their religious beliefs. Judge Rosenbaum wrote one of the dissents and said, no, uh, the juror who's not considering the evidence, not considering the arguments of counsel, should be disqualified, should be kicked off. And so it set up a really interesting debate in the court about the role of religion in jurors uh, and juries. And there were questions that were asked of counsel. What if the juror said that Satan was telling him to vote guilt? Um, would that be allowed? And so there were lots of interesting hypotheticals, lots of interesting debates. And so if you want to read a great uh, opinion, both for the interesting issue and because of the great legal writing, both by Judge Rosenbaum and Judge Pryor, check out United States versus Corinne Brown, which was decided in May of 2021. I think you'll really enjoy the opinions and you'll see what a great legal issue this was. If you need me to email it to you, just uh, shoot me an email at dmarcus at marcuslaw.com and I'll get you uh, that opinion right away. Let's get back to For the Defense. You know, I had an en banc argument a few years back in Atlanta and I was so excited, but I, I have this weird thing. I get to court hours before I need to get there. And so I'm standing outside the Atlanta courthouse waiting to get in for my en banc argument. Doors are still locked and it starts downpouring uh, before the argument. There's no overhead uh, to hide under. So I get drenched um, I'm soaking wet when I go in. It's still hours before. So I'm like in the bathroom with the dryers trying to dry my jacket and my tie and everything else before. Uh, but I guess it was a good way not to be um, just stewing about the argument beforehand. Um, I'm sure that took your mind off. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned filing a or writing a dissent to the denial of a rehearing on Bonk. And those have become more popular lately. Um, Judge Kaczynski, I think, called them dissentals. Um, but it seems to have rubbed some judges the wrong way. Some judges get upset, you know, that there are these dissents to these denials. And there's been a lot of talk lately about you know, civility on the court. And to me, like, I, I like cutting opinions, especially in dissents. Um, you know, Scalia used to write the most cutting opinions uh, in dissent, same with Justice Ginsburg, but then they would go get a beer after they were they were the best of friends. They didn't take it personally that there were these really aggressive uh, dissents or opinions against each other. I mean, what's your view on what's going on with that, and 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 uh, you know how Scalia and Ginsburg used to go grab a beer after cutting each other up in an opinion? Well, I, I think it's great that they did that. Um, we have some similar traditions on the 11th Circuit, which I'll talk about in a minute, but let me first address your point. I mean, obviously, to the extent that you can make your point as well, or sometimes better, without saying things in your opinion that the person whose opinion you might not be in agreement with um, will feel offended, to the extent you can do it without doing that, that's always better. 
So obviously the first preference is to do it as nicely as you can, but you know, it needs to be effective as well. And um, I'm, you know, I, I think sometimes it's not always possible for the person about right. whose opinion you might be writing to come away with it feeling great. So, right. right. No, you know, I get I that. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as the 11th Circuit traditions go, when we sit together um, for panels, for example, if we all go to Atlanta or we all come down to Miami, wherever we are, um, Montgomery, um, we will do things together. We'll, we will uh, go out for dinner. All the, all the judges and their clerks will go out to dinner, spend time together. Whenever we have an on banc uh, meeting or hearing, we have an on banc dinner for all of the judges. And um, there's assigned seating. And so you never know who you're going to sit next who, to. It's who really assigns fun. the seats? Who assigns the seats? I think the chief assigns the seats. And so it's really fun. I mean, you know, one time you're next to this judge, another time you're next to that judge. And it's, it's really kind of a grab bag of what the conversation's going to be. And you learn a lot a lot of really fun and interesting things about your colleagues. So uh, I think I sat next to Judge Pryor, Chief Judge Pryor um, at the last one we had. It's now it's been, gee, I guess it's been uh, 14 or 15 months since our last one. But, uh, and you know, we had this great conversation about um, 1980s music and, and Live Aid um, from 1985. That was a lot of fun. I thought it was, it was really fun because I, you may know this, but, um, he was actually a music major when he first started in college. And I think and he's, uh, he plays, uh, he's a percussionist and he's, uh, his timpani is really, I think his instrument of choice. I don't want to speak out of turn, but in any case, you learn all these interesting things about people. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's a lot of fun to get to know your colleagues outside of the, um, Legal writing. You know, you know, speaking of Judge Pryor, you know, you guys are on opposite sides a lot of opinions. And and the way the court's um, constructed right now, you're on the dissenting side a lot. And, you know, I, I will say from the from the advocate's point of view, from the lawyer's point of view, we love I don't know if you know this, but we love watching you and Judge Pryor go back and forth. It's it's our version of, you know, MMA fighting. And and so you know, we we like watching um, the back and forth. I, I, you know, you started a paragraph in opinion once where you were up against him with HMM, hmm, and you got onto a fight about the guidelines with Judge Pryor on a metaphysical level. And I will say, I love the line in the on banc opinion last night in the, in the um, Brown opinion um, where you said that uh, the majority opinion seems like a soaring eagle but it's really a skulking serpent. I love that stuff. Um, but I was wondering, do when you guys are writing these opinions back and forth before the final product comes out, do you get to see, uh, like, how does it work? You're sending the opinions back and forth yeah. and who gets the last word? So uh, let me just first start by saying, of course, to the extent that we can agree on opinion, we always try on an opinion. We try to do that. Of course. But sometimes you just can't. And so, um, one of the benefits of actually having disagreements on the opinions is that people, you know, you, you learn about holes in your argument. And 
um, you know, I think that what winds up happening is ultimately whatever opinions come out after the process are much more shored up and much more well thought out than they initially were. Um, and, and I think that's good for the development of, of the law. So the way that it works is the majority opinion comes out first and it's sent to either the other panel members or the rest of the court. And then, uh, I mean, then the dis somebody will write a dissent or maybe more than one somebody will write a dissent. Um, and then what happens is um, then whoever wrote the majority opinion and the concurrences or maybe another dissent that wants to speak to an issue in the dissent, whoever knows, whatever you want to speak to, you'll have an opportunity to do another version of your opinion. And this just keeps going back and forth and the versions keep going back and forth until everybody says, okay, I'm done. I don't have any more changes. And so it's really a dialogue that you get between the opinions. And that's why, you know, you'll see us speaking to each other in the opinions or addressing each other's, not really speaking to each other, but addressing each other's arguments in the opinions and explaining what we think is wrong with those or what's mistaken, whatever the case may be, and or responding and saying why we don't think it's a problem that the other side thinks this is a problem, that type of thing. Um, so that's how that works. You know, in the opinion yesterday, the Ambach opinion, I know you can't talk substantively about it, but um, it's a fascinating issue about when you can get rid of a juror for either their own personal views, their religious views, for not following the evidence, for not following the law. I, I have a view that is different than every opinion that was written, which is a juror doesn't have to follow the law or the evidence if they want to acquit, uh, only if they want to convict. And I was looking for that opinion. And um, I don't know, this maybe will lead us into our, our last um, area that I want to talk to you about, which is professional diversity on the bench. So you know, there are, I think, on the 11th Circuit of the 12 judges, I mean, I think everybody has either been a former attorney general, assistant attorney general, prosecutor, AUSA, at some point I'm has... Come from civil, a civil background. What's that? Some come from a civil background. Some come from a civil background, um, but there's no defenders. There's no public defenders on the court, I don't think. Um, and so, you know, isn't that important to have some professional diversity on our courts. And, and um, you know, I, I wonder if, if we could all benefit from that. So this kind of gets back to what I was talking about earlier, um, you know, that I've learned something every place that I've been before I came to this circuit court of appeals. And I've learned things here too, of course. Yeah. But you take those things that you learn with you to your subsequent jobs, right? And so, yeah, I agree with you. It would be good to have people, you know, the more different legal backgrounds that we have that are relevant to the types of things that we do in the court of appeals, I think the better off we are because the more perspectives we will have and the more chances we will have of avoiding having something that we're just not aware of because we haven't been there ourselves slip through the cracks. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, professional diversity is is a good thing for the court. It would be good to have people from different backgrounds. You know, it's interesting. Um, Scalia famously always hired one really liberal law clerk and 
um, just to make sure that he would have somebody who to argue with so that he could flesh out his arguments before he would write his opinion. Um, I know uh, I said this was the last topic, but I have one more. So how do you pick your clerks and how do you find your law clerks? So, you know, that's really one of the best things about this job. It's so much fun to work with the clerks. And, you know, I mean, you hate to see them go at the end of every year, but I really look forward to meeting the new ones every year and, and establishing that relationship. Um, so, like, for me, you know, there's going to be, there will be, a universe of actually a fair number of people who will be able to do the job and do it very well. Um, that is, they have the critical thinking skills, they have the writing skills, they have the research skills. Um, so then, it's, for me, it's about finding the right fit. Um, I take my job really seriously, and we work hard in my chambers. I mean, I don't have some weird rule where you have to be here at X hour of the night or whatever. But I expect that the clerks that I work with will take the job as seriously as I do. And so, you know, we work as hard as we need to work in order to find the best answer under the law and to do it in a timely way. And um, that very infrequently takes 40 hours a week. Um, so, you know, I, but I tell people up front because I want them to know what they're getting into. I don't want somebody to come here thinking, you know, it's probably going to be a 40 hour a week job. And then it turns out not to be. And that just doesn't seem fair. Uh, I don't think anything less of people who don't want to do that. There's good reasons for, you know, wanting more of a balance. Um, but, you know, someone who feels that way is probably not, this is probably not the best fit for them. I also like to look for people who have a positive attitude and are team players. I really, you know, um, I work closely with my clerks. Um, I spend a tremendous amount of time with them. I like coming into the office. I never want to have to worry that somebody's fighting with somebody else or anything like that. So I look for team players who are, you know, who have a good attitude and are just pleasant to be around. And I look for people who are not going to be yes people. Um, I don't want people to just agree with me because they think that I want to hear yes. It's really important to me to get to the best answer and that, you know, there are going to be times when I'm going to miss things and I need somebody to tell me, look, did you think about this? And to argue that, you know, and to argue it with vigor. And ultimately, of course, it's going to be my decision in the end. I might not always agree, but I will have had the benefit of having thought through it. And I guarantee that even if I don't ultimately agree the decision that we make in the end will be better for having had that discussion. So I need people who are comfortable doing that. Not everybody is. And, and again, like there's nothing wrong with people who don't want to do these kinds of things, but this isn't, this wouldn't be a good match or a good fit for them. So I'm just looking for a good fit among the people who have the skills. You know, looping back to what we started with, you, you need Tyrion Lannister. You need someone who's willing to say no. Um, so, so I, I will. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. Um, I'll, I'll end with this little story about you know you, you talked about how hard uh, you have to work as as your law clerk. Um, when I was first interviewing for law clerk positions, I interviewed with um, your former boss Stanley Marcus and and my former boss Judge Davis on the same day. And I remember the law clerks coming out from Judge Marcus to greet me. It was a 9 a.m. interview, and they were all bloodshot eyes with their ties off and. 
they they said to me that they had pulled an all-nighter uh, with Judge Marcus. And I was thinking like, what, what possible all-nighter could there be as a law clerk? But um, that's how hard his law clerks and you must have worked for, for Judge Marcus. Well, you know, I think, you know, obviously the district court is a little bit different too. Um, it's very rare that we do anything resembling an all-nighter. Yeah. Um, you know, there, obviously if there's a death penalty case, right. that would be an exception um, or something of that nature, an emergency, um, some, you know, with the voting stuff going on, there were some late nights, but we don't do it just for the sake of doing it. We do it because the case requires it. And, you know, we, we try to, we, we try to get our work done within reasonable hours. And, and I like to think that we, often do that. So I don't mean to suggest that we're all sitting in the, the office working around the clock, but you know, I, it's just, the point is, um, you know, it's, it's generally not a nine to five job. Right. And, um, that's good to hear. And I just want to thank you, Judge Rosenbaum for doing this. This was awesome. And it was so delightful to speak with you and to hear, from you um, about all these issues. I just want to thank you. And I know it's weird because we can't see everybody watching, but everybody I'm sure feels the same way I do. So thank you very much for doing this. Well, thank you, David. It was a lot of fun. It's always it's always great to see you and to speak with you. And thanks for uh, for putting up with me for the whole time. That was really cool. I want to thank Judge Robin Rosenbaum for doing that interview. I think you can all tell what a great person and a great judge she is from uh, that interview. She's just a really down-to-earth, smart, good egg. And I also want to thank Amundi Nyong'o and his wife Heather again for uh, letting us use their wonderful music called A Call to Arms, which you've heard in the background. Next week, we have Chief Judge William Pryor who's amazing and smart, and it's a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. I also want to thank the Florida Bar for allowing me to use this interview that I did with Judge Rosenbaum. Thank you, Florida Bar. I will see you all next week in For the Defense. Thanks for listening. I'm David Oscar Marcus.